Let's bow our heads. Father, as we come to your word today, uh, lead us into its truth, guard us from error, help me to teach rightly and well. Give the hearers discernment to, and grace to hold on to what is good. And then, Lord, we do pray uh, for the work of Choices Resource Center uh, and, uh, and their ministry to, uh, to those who, who typically are beyond the reach of the, of the church. So thank you for the, uh, just the, uh, the ability and the opportunity to be involved in what you are doing uh, to rescue the fatherless, to care for the widow, to, uh, uh, to minister um, significantly in, in our town. Uh, so, Lord, we, as, we, uh, as we come to your word, we ask your blessing in it. We, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. It was, it was really one of the uh, many, many privileges of, of my life. When I, when I think back on it now, I think what a what a wonder what a what a wonder that that me you know a hick from the sticks you know of East Tennessee <laughs> just uh, uh, to to be in the same room a couple of years into the Christian life you know that to be in the same room as the great Christian philosopher uh, and apologist Francis Schaeffer it just is just amazing now now we're in the same room you know there's a pretty big room. Pretty big room. I don't want to give you the idea it was an intimate affair and that we were pals and we exchanged Christmas cards or anything. But, but there, there was, but there was. You know, I was, I was there. Uh, there was Francis Schaeffer up on the stage and all his alpine glory. You know, that's the the, the uh, bulletin cover is Francis Schaeffer. That that that's him, and that's just what he looked like. That's that's just what he looked like. He wearing his wearing his uh, knickerbockers and his uh, strange looking, you know, strange looking. Um, uh, shirt and kind of a uh, Dutch boy haircut. He look, you know, he's like um, he's from uh, Switzerland. He's, he to me, he looked like he's like one of those big long horns, short of a Ricola commercial. You know, he 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 was. Uh, but anyway, there he was. And he's a, but a great a great man, a great man. Uh, and, and there I was, you know, among thousands of either admirers or critics or seekers in the auditorium at Southern Methodist University in, in Dallas, Texas. He, he was uh, conducting a film a seminar based on his book, How Should We Then Live? Uh, you, who knows that title, How Should We Then Live? You know, so, yeah, a good many of you, uh, a good number of you. Uh, but he was, that book, he wrote that book, and then he, then he developed a uh, film series to go along with it. And it's, it was, here's the whole title, how should we then live the rise and decline of Western thought and culture? And that's what the book was about, the rise and decline of Western thought and culture from times of Rome on, on forward. Uh, he was, and he presented this 10-part uh, seminar. Well, there he was. He was, in, he was doing it in Dallas and there at the Southern Methodist University, and I, and I attended that. Um, he was something of a Renaissance man. You know, he's part philosopher, uh, part art historian, part Christian apologist, uh, but also kind of part prophet. Now, I, I don't mean by that that he said, uh, like a prophet in the Old Testament, the word of the Lord came to me saying. I, I don't mean like that. He, I, I just mean that he, he, you know, as a philosopher, 
as an apologist, as a thinker, you know, as an art historian. He, he, he just looked into the future and considered what the post-Christian world, that's one of the things he thought we're definitely in a post-Christian age, post-Christian era, culturally. We looked at the post-Christian world and looked at what, it's go- what is it going to be like in its particulars, and he just connected the philosophical dots. He just, you know, if that's where we are now, if that's what we believe, you know, what's, where is it going? Where is it going? And, and among the, his predictions, among his predictions, I won't say no, nowhere near the, the, the only one or even his main focus, but it's my focus today. But he said that infanticide, infanticide, now that there was the killing of babies already born, would become acceptable practice in western societies and by western societies europe and united states canada you know that that it it was coming that it would be accepted and since and of course he reasoned since man since the western world no longer considered man to have been made in god's image in fact people in large numbers you know there's not thinking there's any god to be made in the image of but even you know, since man is no longer considered to be made in God's image, there's no reason to think that any person, that anybody, has any intrinsic value simply by virtue of their being a human being. That there's no necessary, that there's nothing sacred about life anymore. Nothing sacred about it. Uh, nothing valuable in and of itself. And he said we we would substitute other things for this, find other reasons for value, like quality of life, like what we can contribute, you know, what a certain person can contribute to society. We would find some other things, but they, but they wouldn't. We wouldn't be no. It's not valuable, sacred because we're made in God's image. And as the Christian moral consensus withered and died, he he saw it as just inevitable that morality would kind of collapse into the self, that we would not look, that, that people would no longer look from outside themselves for moral guidance or for a moral compass, like to God or like to God's Word, but they would look within, within. And of course, I mean, don't you hear the kind of the mottos of the age in that? I mean, I hear it. Listen to your heart. <laughs> Listen to your heart. Be your authentic self. Only, only you know what's best for you. Only you know. You're the only one that can answer that. Uh, no one can tell you what you should be, what you must be, what you must do. Only you know what's right for you. And, and Francis Schaeffer said, that's where we're going. That's where we're going. We weren't there yet, but that's where, where we're going. And when he applied these emerging values to the abortion issue, uh, Schaefer saw infanticide, uh, the killing of infants already born, as the natural next step to legalized, normalized, socially acceptable abortion. And of course, he saw it first as coming uh, in, as an act of compassion, you know, uh, for severely handicapped infants whose quality of life just was not going to measure up to tragic situations where that is just not going to measure up to anybody's idea of a good life. Um, or or th- th- then it would be 
perhaps safety measures for the um, uh, for the for the woman. Uh, you know, so safety measures for her. But it would be acts of. Com- but ultimately, ultimately, it would just be a limitless consequent of the pregnant woman's sovereignty over her own body, that that's what it would boil down to. And it wouldn't matter what reasons there were. That we were, he said, we're, we're headed for infanticide. Now, how should we then live? It was published in 1976. I say I was only a couple of years in, you know, I, was, I was, became a believer in 1974. But... Uh, Roe versus Wade, the Supreme U.S. Supreme Court decision, Roe versus Wade, uh, which overturned uh, state-level restrictions on abortion in in the first trimester. We can talk. I'll say a little bit more about that. What Roe versus Wade did, but it came down just three years before 1973. So this is all in flux. You know, this is a this is what's happening now. Roe versus Wade, uh, 1973. Uh, how should we then live 1976 so it's it's, it's fresh it, it, it's new but when you think about what he said okay in fantasize it's in a, he, and he spoke of it as we can continue down this path it's inevitable uh, but roe versus wade itself was measured and modest um at least by, by comparison with talk like that at least in the eyes of its advocates it, it did not it Roe versus Wade did not legalize infanticide. Uh, it spoke of trimesters and viability. Viability being the point at which a baby can live outside the womb. Um, no, and, and really what Roe versus Wade said was no statutory restrictions on abortion in the first trimester of of a pregnancy first three months no no laws no state laws uh, um, restricting abortion in the first trimester after the first trimester but prior to fetal viability states could regulate abortion in reasonable ways if those regulations promoted the health of the mother and even roe versus wade even allowed states to go so far as to prohibit the abortion of infants who had reached viability except when abortion was deemed necessary to preserve the health or life, air quotes, health or life of the mother. And of course, I mean, if you've, if you live through this, you know, you know that the health of the mother kind of turned out to be the camel's nose in the tent, right? It became very, very broadly uh, defined so that, you know, what, almost what doesn't fit as a, as protecting the health or life uh, of the mother. But all of that talk of trimesters and viability and reasonable restrictions, it gave the impression of, of a kind of a carefulness and caution. And then here comes this Christian, you know, nutcase. <laughs> not, not to me. I admired him very much. I still do. But, but here comes this guy and his knickerbockers and his, you know, <laughs> And his, uh, his strange look and everything, and he's, you know, they paid attention to him because he's selling. So, you know, this was a big deal. He sold a lot of books, and he was very, he was very, uh, a very vocal voice in this, in this, not just the abortion debate, but in, but in all things, uh, cultural, philosophical. 
and he's got the, you know, these, these leggings and everything up there on the stage. And he's, he's saying that the next natural and inevitable step would be not only acceptance of late-term abortions, which Roe versus Wade did not, did not, um, you know, did not allow, uh, but he said it would go so far as to almost like a post-birth abortion. In other words, infanticide. And so, so the reaction against the reaction for the, uh, you know, for for many of at, at not just Southern Methodist University, but a, but a lot of a lot of people. So this is just outrageous. This is outrageous. This is a slander. It, Roe versus Wade doesn't do any of that. What he says, nobody's talking infanticide. Why are you, you Christians? <laughs> Why are you pressing everything? You know, you, you alarmists. Nobody's talking like that. And that, that seemed to be kind of the consensus view of the, at least the hostels at Southern Methodist University. And, and yet, here we are. Here we are. Going on 50 years after he wrote, How Should We Then Live? We are on the cusp of just where Francis Schaeffer said we would be. We're on the cusp of it. Just a few weeks ago, a day, was it the 46th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, or was it a few days after or something? But it's close, close to the anniversary of Roe versus Wade. The New York State Senate passed the Reproductive Health Act, that's what they call it in New York, which permits abortion at any point, at any point, in the first 24 weeks of pregnancy, 24 weeks, six months, wouldn't that be six months? Um, and at any time after 24 weeks, if a health care practitioner deems it necessary for the mother's life or health. And, of course, we already said health has already been defined by the Supreme Court as, quote, all factors, physical, emotional, familial, and the woman's age, relevant to the well-being of the patient. In other words, given the broadness of the health and of the mother exception, the New York State Legislature effectively legalized abortion on de effectively on demand up to the point of birth. Furthermore, New York's Reproductive Health Act defined a person, which is handy for these things. What's a person? And they said a person is a human being who has been born and is alive. That's a person under the law. A, a person is a person, someone who has been a human being who has been born and is alive. And of course, it, I don't think it takes a constitutional attorney to figure out that where that leaves a human being who is not yet born. It, it leaves a human being who is not yet born in the same place that the uh, Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision left a, uh, left a slave in 1857. A human being, to be sure. Nobody could deny that, a human being, but not a person under the law not a person with rights and protections under the law that are uh, afforded all persons. But what I said, so that's the New York State legislature. We're right there. 
But what I found shocking about it, maybe this was you too, what I, what I found shocking about it was not just the passage of the bill, but, but the cheering of the legislators upon passage of the bill. Like it was a great and wonderful thing on the order of the Emancipation Proclamation. You know, it was a, a free at last, free at last. And in fact, that's how they saw it. The, the governor uh, called it, a, quote, a giant step forward. A giant step forward, which to me implies more steps. But he says a giant step forward. He, he uh, under his direction, he ordered that One World Trade Center be shrouded in pink to celebrate, the pink lights on One World Trade Center to celebrate the achievement. And so, so the New York Reproductive Health Act, it goes, it goes way further than Roe versus Wade did. Way further. No, talk, no longer in talk about trimesters or restriction, reasonable restrictions or anything like that. Because, and it really, it takes us right up to the brink of infanticide, but, just, but someone might argue, not quite, not quite. Because a moment before, the way the New York State Legislature has it figured, and the way the law is now, a moment before birth, a moment before birth, a baby is not a person. And a moment afterwards, that same baby is a person. Like, congratulations, you made it. <laughs> you made it. But it, and it's, it's, uh, it doesn't sound very scientific, does it? It's, biology wouldn't tell you that. That there's some sort of magic in just the, in the location of a baby. You know, what to, that, that in that moment that, it, that, this, that this baby would go from non-person to person under the law. But of course, you know, a preborn baby, of course, is a person before that. The preborn baby, John the Baptizer, Luke tells us, leapt with joy. You remember that? Leaped with joy at the presence of the preborn Jesus in the womb of his mother Mary. Uh, Luke 1, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Wow. That, that was a, it was a um, worship service of, uh, of pre-born people. <laughs> Neither one was born, but there's a worship service going on there. But they're both persons, aren't they? It, it's, it's been a long time. But I remember seeing uh, sometimes with uh, with my wife when we were having our children. You remember seeing like a footprint pressed up against the <laughs> against the side. Of, you know, you think it looks like a it's a foot. You know, you see the footprint in a pressing up against the against the skin. And, you know, you see the shape of it, and it sure gave an unmistakable impression of something in there with a mind of its own. <laughs> But somehow that that, that 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 would be not a person, not a person. 
But, you know, if men could wrangle themselves into regarding black slaves as non-persons, human beings, yes, but non-persons, but not just property, surely we would have little trouble accomplishing the same feat of logical gymnastics with someone we've not seen, we don't, we don't see with our eyes, uh, an unborn baby. The Bible declares, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. You know, I think, I think just about everybody's soul knows it very well deep down. Deep down. That I suspect everybody deep down, regardless of your position on these things, realizes that you did not come from a child, but that you were a child. And everybody knows that you. Everybody knows that they did not come from a fetus, but you were one. And I'm not even crazy about the term fetus because what is a fetus? A fetus is a baby of undetermined legal status. <laughs> fetus is the word we use when we're not sure we want this child to be born or not. But okay. The New York abortion laws may have declared uh, the pre-born baby as a non-person, which it did, which it does. Pre-born baby is a non-person. But at least it says those who have been born and are alive enjoy the protections of the law afforded all persons. Uh, so even the new law, even that new law in New York, comes up well short of of legalizing, terminating the lives of babies already born. It does, because a person is a someone who's been born and is alive. So we head south from New York to the state of Virginia, where the legislature were there was also considering a bill, same time frame, just a couple weeks ago, that would loosen restrictions on uh, third trimester um, abortions. Uh, specifically, the proposed law in Virginia would, would uh, allow third trimester abortions if one physician, one physician, confirms that continuing the pregnancy to term would, quote, impair the mental or physical health of the woman. That's what, that's what was prior, it, I think they required two or three doctors to, to sign off on that, that continuing his pregnancy would impair the mental or physical health of the woman. But the legislation was, no, we would just want one. And not a doctor necessarily, but a, a practitioner. Uh, so in debate, the sponsor of the bill was, was pressed by opponents of the bill. And here, here's, the, uh, here's the exchange. How late in a pregnancy... Would your bill apply if a physician was simply willing to certify that con the continuation of a pregnancy would impair the mental health of the woman? How late are we talking about? Which is a good question, you know, given the broadness of the meaning that could be assigned to mental well-being, or uh, given the arbitrariness of a definition of personhood that hinges 
on the very moment of birth, uh, you know, right before you're born, not a person, right after you're born, a person? It's a, it's a good question. So how late are we talking about? Here's the answer. Sponsor of the bill said, so the way the suggestion that we've made in the bill is to say that it's in the third trimester with the certification of the physician. Because I read that suggestion, suggestion we've suggested in the bill. I, I don't know how things work in Virginia, but I'm not used to laws that say suggestion. You know, we, we suggest you go 55 in this, uh, you know, in this stretch of road. Um, so the bill sponsor was pressed a little further. So, so how late? How late in the third trimester would you be able to do that? Answer again. Through the third trimester, the third trimester goes all the way up to 40 weeks. Question. To the end of the third trimester? I, I answer, I don't think we have a limit in the bill. Pressing again. Where it's obvious that a woman is about to give birth, she has physical signs that she's about to give birth, would that still be a point where she could request an abortion if she's so certified with the mental health thing? If she's, she's dilating? She's dilating? The answer is, Mr. Chairman, that would be a decision that the doctor, the physician, and the mother would make at that point. The question is, I'm asking if your bill would allow that. Answer, finally, my bill would allow that. Yes. So, are we at infanticide yet where Dr. Schaefer said we would be? We're, we're getting awfully close. We're getting awfully close because we're not talking trimesters anymore. We're talking about the moment of birth. Well, as you, as you know, uh, probably know, the governor of Virginia was asked to weigh in on this exchange that these legislators had, the one I just read to you. And what do you think about it, governor? And which, which he proved uh, that there, <laughs> it seemed to me, he proved that there's no political situation that can't be made worse, you know, so he... So he he opined about it, and, and how he clarified it, you know, he, he clarified the situation. It, it made me wonder that the subsequent blackface scandal that he got embroiled in was, uh, it didn't help him by changing the subject. <laughs> because in his remarks, speaking to this situation, what's the practice in Virginia? Um... He seems to be talking not so much about late-term abortion, but about post-birth abortion. As if there could be such a thing. As a, you know, that's this nonsense talk, right? Post-birth abortion. If they're post-birth, can we, are we not, we're not talking abortion anymore. Except that we are. Except that we are talking about abortion. So here's what he, here's what he said about it. You know, he, he, the governor took the discussion exactly to the infanticide that Dr. Schaefer warned about. And here's what he said. And he's also a doctor. He makes that point. He's a practicing doctor. And so he, he makes the point. And here's what he said. When, quote, when we talk about third trimester abortions, so in other words, we're still talking about abortion, he's, he says, when we talk about third trimester abortions, these are done with the consent of obviously the mother, with the consent of the physicians, more than one physician, by the way, he said, and it's done in cases where there may be severe deformities, there may be a fetus that's non-viable. 
So in this particular example, if the mother is in labor, I can tell you exactly what would happen. The infant would be delivered. The infant would be kept comfortable. The infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother. And then he added, so I think it, this was really blown out of proportion. It sounds like he's talking about current protocols for third trimester abortions and not just what would happen under the new law. I've read that statement like three, I've read it several times, you know, trying to figure, is he talking about what's happen what happens now in Virginia? About in his own practice? What he, or is he talking about what would be under, and when I read it, I can't figure it out. And I give him full marks for slipperiness. I, I give him top marks for slipperiness. Because I can't figure out which one he's talking about. But in the end, you have to, in the end, what is this discussion that would ensue between a mother and her physician. What is that discussion about? And there's no getting around it. What that discussion is about is about whether a born and living human being no longer considered, conceivably considered part of the woman's body, existing independently of her, able to be made comfortable, able to live, should continue to live or die. And, and in there, we are exactly at infanticide. Even though the doctor continues to call it a third trimester abortion, How things have changed since Roe versus Wade. How things have changed. You know, e even a full decade after Roe versus Wade, I think it was, um, oh, Robin, I can't remember when, um, when Julie Porter was born, uh, 1986. That would have been maybe 1986. It was a full decade after Roe versus Wade. Uh, for those of you who don't know, we have our great friends, uh, Ruth, uh, Steve and Ruth Porter, our missionaries in Nigeria, medical missionaries in Nigeria, with their severely handicapped uh, daughter, uh, still living, outliving the doctor's uh, projections uh, by decades, <laughs> uh, but severely handicapped. You, almost all of you have seen her. When Julie was born... A full decade after Roe versus Wade, there was no discussion um, between Ruth Porter and her physician about what should be done with Julie. Uh, there was no discussion about whether her life would be worth living or if her quality of life would be considered to be so low uh, so minimally functional that it really wouldn't be worth living. There was no discussion like that. 
And no place for a discussion like that. There was no discussion about what Julie's life would mean for Ruth's life or would mean for Steve's life. And those discussions would have been unthinkable at the time. Why? Because Julie is made in the image of God, her severe handicaps notwithstanding. Made in the image of God. Valuable in and of herself, apart from any functionality. And her life is worth living because it's the gift of a sovereign God. And whether we can see the, the point in such a life or not. As the Lord said to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And now all these years later, I don't know if you've picked this up in, in Steve's, and you, if you've talked with them when they're here, I wonder if you've picked this up. But now they go so far as to talk about Julie's ministry. <laughs> Have you heard them say that? Julie's ministry. And what is her ministry? showing the Nigerian people the value of human life because they don't have any. It seems so strange to them that this child would be cared for and loved and protected given her handicaps. And Julie's ministry is showing the wonderful reality of God's redeeming love for the helpless. And the helpless, not just like Julie, but like you and me. <laughs> Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. That means that our battle is not against flesh and blood. As Mark mentioned in the worship service. But against spiritual powers of darkness. Uh, the Apostle Paul admonishes us, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That means the battle is not against the New York State Legislature, nor the Virginia State Legislature, nor the governor, at least that's not the central battlefield. Uh, there is a legislative and, and uh, legal battlefield. Those are important. God has called his Wilbur forces, his William Wilbur forces, William Wilbur force, the Christian who was um, perhaps centrally responsible for, uh, for overturning slavery laws and uh, the practice of slavery in, in England. Francis Schaeffer was one of those Wilbur forces. So, uh, some of you have been as well. Some of you have taken your place on the sidewalk time. Some of you have the arrest record to show for it. I've been there too. I, I escaped the arrest part somehow. Looking through my notes this week, I came across a letter to the editor I wrote. I can't, I can't remember writing it at all, <laughs> but it's a long time ago. I'm glad I wrote it though. But there, there is an unseen battlefield behind the earthly one and it's the battle of two kingdoms. It's the kingdom of God over against the kingdom of man and rebellion against God. And there are no neutrals in that war. 
Jesus said, Whoever's not, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever is, does not gather with me scatters. You know, there were issues in Jesus' time, and Jesus' enemies were always trying to maneuver him into taking a political position, kind of a political position, that would uh, weaken him politically. It would cost him some support. But Jesus kept pressing on one issue, one issue. And that issue was and remains, who is Jesus? And what did he come to do? Now, what does it mean that Jesus was and is God in human flesh? He's born into our world. He became one of us that he might bear our sins, free us from the domain of darkness, transfer us to the kingdom of light. Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, which is one of the reasons, probably the central reason why I have always loved our church's support of Choices Resource Center, uh, because it goes to the heart of the battle. It, in, in other words, they aren't about lobbyists and wash, you know, paying a lobbyist in Washington to applying legislators for votes or even publishing position papers, but it's, but it's about introducing women at risk for abortion and the fathers of those babies into relationship with Christ and transferring them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It, it's, choices is about representing accurately the heart of Christ to those who are in a crisis of their own making. But that there they are. And you want to know how I, I think we best strike a blow in this abortion battle when we reach out in compassion and love to the one who is in a, what we might call a crisis pregnancy, whether it's in our church or whether it's in our church's extended family or whether it's through choices or whether it's through our volunteering or our financial support. And our prayers. When we help moms and dads enter into relationship with God through faith in Christ and help them know what following Christ means in their situation right now. And maintaining that emphasis on the gospel, we stay on the same side of the, of the single mom who's at risk for abortion. And that's where we ought to be, on the same side. Because while we have, may not have all been complicit in abortion somehow, we are all sinners in need of salvation. And, and, and so let me say this. If you are serving, and I don't believe this is the case. I really don't think this would be the case. But if your service to the pro-life cause consists of condemning all those evil people who have had an abortion or advocate for abortion all the while congratulating yourself that you would never do such a thing because you're a good person and would never consider such a thing, then your, if that really would be the case, your advocacy probably does more harm than good. And among the things that this uh, Francis Schaeffer said is that there is nothing so ugly as biblical orthodoxy without compassion. I would want what I'm going to say here to be taken in context. Please don't take me out of context. And you might not expect a sentence like a statement like this to be made in a sermon like this. But abortion is not the problem. 
Sin is the problem. Man in rebellion against God is the problem. Spiritual brokenness is the problem. And that, and that manifests itself some, in abortion sometimes and in sexual sins of, of, of all kinds sometimes, most of which are heterosexual in nature, by the way. In cruelty sometimes, in lying sometimes, in cheating in business sometimes. In harboring racial hatred sometimes, in unforgiveness sometimes, in violence lots of times, in lust sometimes, in theft, in indifference to suffering, in coarse and vulgar talk, in a thousand different ways it manifests itself. And so that we are all among those who need the Lord's forgiveness, and all need salvation from sin and death. And when we think about it that way, we might even think of our enemies in the abortion battle as actual victims of the enemy, <laughs> of the larger enemy, who blinds the eyes of the unbelieving so that they cannot see the truth of the gospel, and who holds them captive to do his will, to, to take a couple of New Testament phrases. Ephesians 6 says that we are not unaware of the Satan's wiles, his tactics, his schemes. And what's his central scheme? What, what is Satan's central scheme? Uh, his, tac his central tactic. I, th I think it would have to be deception, wouldn't it? Deception. Deception. From the Garden of Eden, it's been his, how he works. He, he lied about God's motives in giving Adam and Eve this one little restriction. <laughs> this one restriction in the Garden. And Satan said, he basically said, God's just trying to hold you down. He doesn't want you to be all you can be. He's trying to hold you back. And following his counsel meant he's, he presented his life, right? You want to really live? You want to really live? Don't do what God said. And what did, what, did, what, did, what really happened? Death. Death. He promised life. He delivered death. And he hid from Adam and Eve the, the long-term consequences of their disobedience. And that's the way he rolls. That's what he does. He disguises himself as an angel of light, the New Testament says. The ravenous wolves in his service, they dress themselves in sheep's clothing. So we can't be surprised that Roe versus Wade would eventually end up in infanticide, even though nobody told us that's where we were going, except for the prophetic voice, perhaps. It's deception. I want to read, I'm really out of time, but I want to read just a little bit of this. It's a song, and I don't know if it's popular or not. I know it's current, and I, but it's about this issue. It's about... Um, 
someone who's about to get an abortion. It's called, it's called uh, Voicemail for Jill. And here, I want to read just part of the song. Jill, it's Amanda waving from London. I know, where you're, I know that you're going tomorrow, the hardest decision. And I've been on the side of the phone for a month, and I know you're in hell, and you know that I know what you're feeling. Here's kind of the chorus, I think. When you have a baby, they throw you a party. And when you die, they're get, they get together for a cry. But no one's going to celebrate you. No one's going to bring you cake. No one's going to shower you with flowers. The doctor won't congratulate you. No one on that pavement is going to shout at you that your heart also matters. I'm not sure that you'll get this in time. I don't know if you're checking your voicemail at all, but in case it's the morning and you're off at the green line and walking through Copley, I want you to stop for a second. It's Boston, by the way. <laughs> I want you to listen. You don't need to offer the right explanation. You don't need to beg for redemption or ask for forgiveness. And you don't need a courtroom inside your head when you're, at, you're acting as judge and the accused and defendant and witness. No one's going to celebrate you. No one's going to bring you cake. No one's going to shower you with flowers. The doctor won't congratulate you. No one's on that pavement's going to shout that your heart also matters. No one's going to compliment you. No one's going to nod their head and wink in league with what you're pursuing. No one's going to tie surprise balloons onto your desk at work. And no one's going to ask you how you're doing. But I'll be back in Boston by next Thursday. Why don't I come over? I can bring some friends if you want us to come. We can bring you cake and we can bring you flowers. We can bring you wine and we can talk for hours. Ukulele by request will throw you the best abortion shower. Jesus offers a, not a deception like that where he, um, he tells us that it's okay, that we have nothing to seek forgiveness for, it's all right, you don't need redemption, you haven't sinned. Rather, he speaks the truth in love and offers us real life real forgiveness, real redemption. Even if it hurts to hear it, <laughs> even if it hurts us a little to know that we need it, but we do. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's the truth. The thief comes only to steal 
and kill and destroy. Jesus came that they, we, might have life and have it abundantly. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we, we, we pray for our nation we, and for your grace and patience upon a nation that for so long and in such great numbers has sacrificed the innocent and helpless for the will of the strong, whatever the calculation, whatever the reason, we pray for those who have been deceived, that the scales would fall from their eyes, that they might see and welcome the truth of the gospel. We pray for the witness of the church, that we would speak the truth in love, with grace and truth in equal measure. That we would not condemn as though we were without sin somehow, even if we're slandered as doing so. We pray for the work of Choices Resource Center. We thank you for the opportunity through our prayers, through our financial support, uh, through our volunteer work to be involved in that good work on behalf of the widow and the orphan. For the glory of Christ and the blessing of people, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.